The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. Now, this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Mary and Tom Poppendick. We recorded this episode after they attended my Creating High Performance Organizations workshop in Dublin, which was both an honor and a humbling experience. You see, both Mary and Tom have been a huge inspiration for me in my work, and they've been kind enough to offer me great guidance, challenge my thinking and mentor me over many years. And they continue to do that on this podcast. We dive into questions about the challenges that the Agile community currently faces and many of the things that they feel it needs to unlearn. We also tackle the perennial question of scaling agility and debunk many of the myths about why you need to descale your teams and create the right architecture to allow your organization grow. And then finally, we dive into the questions around them. What has allowed them to stay so relevant over so many decades as they continue to coach mentor, and help everyone in this industry improve. But before we dive into that, it's important to understand maybe some of the lesser known facts about both Mary and Tom. You see, Mary's always been an engineer, but she wasn't a software first engineer. Mary's used to solving problems and understanding the impact of solving those problems and why we need to create safe systems as we design problems that have never been tackled before. We were controlling equipment that could explode because it was in a volatile environment, equipment that could kill people if it ran away because these are great big massive coders and, and huge vats of, of uh, explosive chemicals. And um, so equipment control, uh, when, when engineers are designing equipment, one of the fundamentals they think of, and I thought of this based on the programming for the 737 MAX, the engineers in my department were so focused on safety that they felt that it was the responsibility of every single person to understand where their piece might, in fact, compromise safety in any way. And they always, the main thing they reviewed my work for was safety. And of course, they put manual overrides on all of my computer systems because they didn't trust computers, like, you know, properly so. Yeah. But I learned a lot from the engineering department, and I have never worked in an IT department in my life. So I think of software engineering as engineers working to solve problems they are presented with. So that's a really strong influence on the way I think about and talk about software development. It occurred to me that the first thing I ever did was reliability engineering. Similarly, Tom isn't necessarily a software person first either. He's actually a physics professor, and his calling is really teaching. My fundamental orientation has been teaching. Teaching means helping people be more successful in what they do, helping them come alive in ways that they may not otherwise. And from most things that I've done, decades later, people contact me and say, thank you, you made a big difference. And that is really, really gratifying. And it's probably the most gratifying thing about what we've been doing for our hobby as well, that the ideas that we're sharing 
the questions that we ask have made a big difference in a lot of organizations and to a lot of individuals. It's not unusual that people that have been in our classes end up moving to a different organization, that they eventually become very influential or become executives in the organization and transform the way things are done in a place. That's very satisfying. And it should be, you know, like as someone who's read both a lot of your work and enjoyed it and deployed it and you know, I'd like to think I've had some success from it. So thanks for that. Yes. And, uh, you know, like this stuff is, um, it's very interesting to me, right? And it's one of the reasons I was excited to have you both on the podcast, because you have seen like a lot of stuff now, right? Like you've seen many waves, you've seen de- many fads, you've seen things that have come and gone and you write and share about it regularly, which is, is very helpful for the community. So I guess one one of the questions I really wanted to pose you both is, what, what, where is the community going now, both in the right direction and the wrong direction? Or okay. s- some of the things that maybe we need to unlearn from the Agile movement that aren't helping us, or maybe I some of the a, things I we need a, to relearn. I had a workshop yesterday, and I asked how many people were here when Agile began. 20% max. Agile started as a reaction to what was going on. We need to recognize that the vast majority of people doing software engineering today weren't there then, didn't live under those regimes. They may have those regimes still as sort of leftovers, but not necessarily. And so one of the things Agile has to do is grow up to be not a reaction to bad things that happened in the past, but to be something that talks about what does it take to do good software engineering? My current focus Brings me back to my engineering days. Remember, not IT days. (laughs) And the thing I, I am most concerned about is that no matter how many times I talk to people, most of them say, well, somebody else, like, you know, their various intermediate proxies are between us and customers, and they tell us what to do. Now, when I was an engineer doing process control systems, We were the process control engineers. I mean, some people at the table today said, didn't you have a detailed spec? Huh? I was an engineer. I worked with very seasoned control engineers. The system being built needed a control system. There was nobody in the world that could tell us engineers how to put together a control system. That was our job. And I maintain this attitude that good software engineering means that the software engineers are given problems that they solve, not tasks to complete, not specs, not details of how things are done, not dinky little one day worth of, you know, work to do, but complete problems to solve. And when IT departments were cost centers and they weren't really important for businesses, they were just like automating processes and maybe saving a little bit of money. Yeah. Maybe that was appropriate. But when you think of a software engineering organization as being the technology is critical to the success of the company, we need to do something very different with our customer base than we did before. We need to be fast. We need to be able to understand the competition. We need to solve tough problems. We do not need somebody telling smart software engineers how to solve whatever problem somebody perceives. We don't need a proxy in between the engineering team 
and the customers and the solutions that they design. That is not a typical thing you see in an engineering organization. My son's a structural engineer. If you have an earthquake, you call in structural engineers to evaluate the buildings and see whether or not the building can be used again and what mediation is necessary. You would never give them a detailed spec with cost and scope on exactly what they're going to do while they're in that building. That's the job of the structural engineers. Here's a building, see if it's safe, let us know what we need to do, and by the way, we trust your professional judgment. We're not doing that for software engineers. We're saying, here's a detailed spec, and here's exactly what you should do, and we're not even giving, putting engineers in touch with their customers, the kind of customers that are going to inspire them. So, for example, we say, oh, well, help the company make more money. That's a good outcome, yeah. Well, well for some people it is. Yeah. Yeah, for the people who give the tasks to the engineers. But for me, okay, when I did a control system, I wasn't thinking about how to make more money for the company. I was thinking about how to make really good product and how to make it easy for the people working in the plant to do that. And that was inspiring. And I think software engineers need to be given um, interesting customer-focused problems where they can see the impact of their work on real people's lives or the way that people do their jobs or something like that instead of let's make more money for the company. So if you think about put these two things together, we should think about how do we make sure we understand what matters to customers and how do we communicate what matters and what problems customers are having to an engineering team that then we charter to attack that problem. Okay. And we're not doing that yet as in Agile. We have practices that actually put an intervening proxy in between that gets in the way of uh, whether it's a, you know, a cost objective or a, you know, somebody telling the team what to do and setting their priorities, how insulting, rather than giving the team whole problems and saying, you're smart, here's constraints, here's the overall objective, here's why it's important to people, and here's some senior people in the area that know some of the ropes so that you get the right direction and go solve the problem. That's, um, I think, very actionable advice for people. Because even just hearing that, you know, what the kind of signals that they can be looking for in their companies are very obvious. Right? Are they being just giving revenue outcomes, mm -hmm. shareholder value outcomes, mm -hmm. rather than customer outcomes? Right. Now, you can go look at your charter right now and see if that signal is there that you're maybe on the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. other, exactly. Other points like how connected are you to your customers? Like asking that as a question, how many proxy levels are between you and your customer? Obviously, the, the more probably you want to get rid of. Well, what even is, one is too many. So what about you, Tom? What are some of the thoughts that are knocking around your mind? Oh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I like having you vote on. The thing that I see in Agile is a attempt to, especially people who try and scale Agile, is an attempt to solve problems with process. And the problem is not usually a process problem. It's usually an architectural problem that um, the structure of the applications that you are evolving, the 
the structure of the organization that supports them, the structure of the relationship between the supporting groups and the people who are benefiting from it leads to pretty dysfunctional behavior. Um, if you want to solve the problem, you have to fix the structure. You have to fix the architecture. Conway's Law says the um, organizational architecture and the technical architecture will match. You said in the um, class today that you sell your organization chart to your customers. Yeah, you ship it, yeah. And you ship it. And that's, I think, so true that the way you structure the organization has a tremendous impact on whether the customers are delighted or disgusted by interactions that they choose to have or not to have with you. And I think that that has to get fixed. There are, I think, pretty well understood approaches that are working in many organizations. Share some. Well, the most obvious one is the two pizza team at Amazon. The teams are responsible for the success of their customers. The support groups at T-Mobile are responsible for the profitability of the segment of customers that they are supporting. They make day-to-day -day decisions on how to deal with customer problems based on whether or not that team of about 50 people thinks that it's going to help increase the profitability of that group for the company, and they're responsible for that. They don't have a process that tells them how to respond to problems. They get together and they talk about, here's a tough problem. What do we think the best way to solve it is so that we make that customer happy and yet don't mess up the overall profitability of our environment for the long term? So there was a team that handled a group in Utah, and they noticed that as kids went to college, what they discovered is they were going off on a mission, yep. and then they had to leave their mobile phones at home. They weren't allowed to have them. So this team said, huh, well, what could they do? And they found out that they could have laptops. When they had a cancellation, they offered a tablet with a mobile phone connection, and they could take it. And suddenly, all of the ones that were going off on mission converted to tablets, and that particular group was strongly more profitable than they showed like a 20% increase because it wasn't that they were making money for the company. It was they were solving customer problems and helping that little segment be much more successful. And that's the way that they saw it. Now, they were responsible to make sure that the company didn't lose money, and they took that responsibility seriously because with that one metric, they got to do whatever they wanted. Well, what I love about these examples is you're really highlighting a little bit of the design problem here, mm. right? There's an organizational design problem. Instead of having these silos of thinking or operating, you have these sort of groups that are mm -hmm. autonomous but responsible for certain outcomes, yeah. be it in T-Mobile, be it in Amazon with their cross-functional teams that allow them to sort of connect to their customers directly, to your point before. So when you're helping companies to start to make this transition, what are some of those first few small steps that they need to go through 
to get there? What are some of the things they need to be thinking about? It's very dependent upon where they're at. Okay, we were at one company that was, you know, about as far along as I've ever seen a company understanding these things and having engineering teams and stuff, but they were doing hardware and software, and their hardware and software teams were not integrated very well, and they had just accepted a massive contract to deliver some stuff. Bet your company had to be on time, and uh, we were there for a day. So I, I was meeting with the leadership team, and I said, you know, you've told me you just accepted this massive contract. How are you going to be sure that you deliver? Because it's like you don't have a choice. You've got a deadline. You've got a cost. You have to deliver. How are you going to do that? I don't think you're actually set up right now to make it happen. How comfortable are you? So they looked at me like, oops. <laughs> and they said, well, what do you recommend? Well, that's a fair question. So for this company... I explained the concept of sync and stabilize because sync and stabilize is a very classic hardware software design technique where every somewhere between one and three months you have uh, deadlines and goals and all of the teams, hardware software teams, bring at each goal, at each integration point, they bring a certain set of things, they put it together, they test it, they see how that integration point works, they decide what to do next. And so every single, like, say two months, you're integrating, you're integrating across all of the teams, and you're not worried about 12 months out. You're worried about, have I divided my problem into 12 equal parts? And if I make all of these 12 equal parts, am I going to make the end? And am I getting this part done? And then am I getting the next part done? And then am I getting the next? So you can you can watch real done progress every two months. And that's a real classic hardware software technique. It was first mentioned in software by Cusimano in the book, How Microsoft Does Software. And the sync and stabilize, and we left, and I think I spent 10 minutes describing sync and stabilize. And two months later, three months, I got an email from them saying, well, you challenged us, and we asked you what you would do, and you said sync and stabilize, and so we decided maybe we would try it. And you wouldn't believe what it's done. It's changed the way we look at the whole world. It's changed our company. We would never go back. Here's a picture of the team. It was like 30 or 40 people, and they were all smiling, and they said, yeah, we think we're probably going to meet our deadline because we're doing really well on our sync points. So that was a very far along company. So this is... You know, I constantly get asked questions about integrating hardware and software. So this is just such a rich example. Like, it's a classic. But there's so many like little nuances happening there. The batching problem, right? You're breaking things down to smaller batches. You're continuously integrating the different components together. Well, yes, but you have to realize that hardware development does not operate on a two-week cycle. Absolutely. Okay, you have to appreciate that. Typically, however, hardware can operate on either two-month or three-month cycle. And so you put two- and three-month cycles in, and the software, they can sync together with the other software folks, whatever pace they want. But you have to sync across all of the things on a either two- or three-month cadence. Um, you'd never go more than three months, even on a two-year project. As a classic hardware, I mean, that's what I did. I did hardware software engineering. Yeah. And that's, I mean, like, that's the way it's done. And that's And okay. it works. And yeah. you get stuff done on time. Right. And there are laws of physics that exist. I'm sure Tom <laughs> will tell us that, right? But it's great to see that, because you know, often a huge pushback I hear is, we're hardware. We can't iterate. We can't work in smaller batches. But 
But even if your batch is typically a year and you could break it down to three months, that's making a smaller batch. And it does open up opportunity that all those good things about working in smaller batches offer, like continuous integration, right. like testing your beliefs on a regular basis, evaluating progress and teams feeling successful. So well, if you look at a Toyota product development cycle for a new car, they start with the first three months is design structure plans. And everybody sinks and reviews those. And then they do clay models. And then, they, you know, so every single three months, they have a deadline that everybody meets across all the whole several hundred people that are working on it. They bring those clay models out. Everybody looks at them. They spend two days. They review it. They see what's wrong, what's right. And every team that's contributing to it is expected to bring three options. You know, one that's guaranteed to work for this integration point, one that would be a push, but hopefully it'll work, and one that's really far out there. And they find out which one of those things fits. And by hitting these deadlines every three months with everybody having an option for their piece that will work, they move on to, over time, developing the best integrated system choices for the whole car. They don't have a complete detailed spec like to begin with. They develop it as they do these sync points over time. And every time I see an engineering organization that is able to get stuff done and have good results, and you dig into their process, you're going to see a process that's pretty similar. Yes, yeah, very interesting. There's another dimension here. We've been talking about hardware and software, but there's also wetware. Just explain what wetware is. for None of this there. happens by executing a process or writing code. What it happens is with people. And people are today's short, critical resource. There's plenty of money sloshing around financial systems. Material shortages are not the big deal. The big deal is the passion of bright, creative people. And the passion of bright, creative people is not owned by anybody. It is volunteered. And in order to harness the passion, you have to behave very differently than has been necessary in the past. If you're going to inspire people to motivate themselves to do something really great, you have to give them something meaningful that is meaningful to them, something that they care about. You have to give them the opportunity to become better and better, more competent. And you have to give them autonomy. I'm just echoing research from a bunch of psychologists popularized by Dan Pink. But I think it's important to understand that this is the critical resource. You can't make anything happen unless you have bright people contributing. You can't treat them as cost centers. Treating them as a cost center is an insult. And I think organizations are finding that their best people leave because they don't like to be insulted. I think that organizations are finding their best people are leaving IT departments, not just because they are cost centers, but because they find much more meaning when they are actually connected directly to something they care about. An IT organization is typically isolated and is told what to do. And increasingly people don't like to be told what to do. They like to be able to figure things out for themselves. And 
guiding, leading this kind of effort is absolutely vital, but it can't be commanded. Well, what I, I really enjoy about what you're saying here is it almost goes back to this point of, uh, as Murray was talking about, about a challenge. Mm-hmm. Like great people want to be challenged and they want meaningful challenges yes. to work on. And they're not getting excited by increasing shareholder value. That's, That's not, for that seems sure. to be not yeah. very exciting for people for some reason. I don't know why. But it's not, Ted, <laughs> this is not about great people. This is about making people great. And most people want to be great. Some are better than others, but everybody has a potential to do really good things, but they can be prevented. And so much of our practice, so much of our architecture prevents people from being great, from making a real difference. And if they could, great things would happen. It's not that you have to have super people, but you have to have a super environment. It's Josh. Josh is Josh Garski's make people awesome. If you look at Jeff Dean and Sanjay Gimlet, the two folks that pretty much invented the Google file system and MapReduce and all of that sort of stuff, they started out at DEC and moved together over in 1999 to Google. And they've said... Jeff Dean said the reason they went was so that they could do work that had direct impact on customers that they could see. Now, when they got there, nobody told them what to do except for the fact that here's this massive amount of data. There doesn't exist any infrastructure that can handle it. Figure it out. Okay, Give great challenge. Given they engineers roast. problems, try to solve. Wonderful, okay. And actually, if you look at DevOps today, and by the way, DevOps engineers, not DevOps, but site reliability engineers, are paid maybe 50% more than a starting oh, absolutely. Uh, software engineer. And nobody tells them what to do. They figure it out. They're given challenges and they figure it out. And that's fun. It's also lucrative. So could be one of the better jobs in software engineering. But... They, they had that job when they went to Google, figure out how to make these little tiny computers handle massive amounts of data and always be available and never lose it. And by the way, stuff dies all the time. And they figured it out in such a way that pretty much their strategy has been copied, but they did it because they were considered engineers who could figure out problems and they were given a massive challenge and they rose to it. And I think we should be thinking about how do we create really interesting challenges for our smart, creative software engineers so that they can get engaged in figuring out solutions, not isolating them from the problem, immersing them in the problem, which, by the way, site reliability engineers get to do, and most software engineers oftentimes don't. Well, I think that really resonates with me for a number of reasons, but Definitely one of my sort of favorite stories that sort of resonates with that was Adrian Cockcroft, who was the head of cloud engineering at Netflix, as they were sort of making this transition mm-hmm. to AWS. You know, he, he always tells a great story that anytime he was talking about, you know, doing these great things at Netflix, everyone would be like, oh, well, you know, you've just got all these great engineers, you know, and um, they obviously want to work for Netflix. And he would look around the table and he'd go, well, what company are you from and where are you from? And, well, that's very interesting because all our engineers came from you. You know, all we did was give them challenging problems to solve and got out of their way. Yeah. 
and let them get on with solving these problems. So the best advice I can give you, if you want to have Netflix quality engineers, is just give them challenging problems and to work get on. out of their way. <laughs> you know, so oh, that's cool. It is, and so it's lovely to hear these stories from both right. of you, right? And so if you think about, I think the other big invention was the service oriented architecture that pretty much Amazon put into place. So when I think of Amazon, let's just not say Amazon. Let's talk about AWS. Okay, that's a $25 billion or more company. And it's one that I really think a lot of. And I'm amazed at what they're able to do every year. But I also observe that they pretty much do it with a very, they have 4,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 services with each service having a small handful of teams responsible for it, responsible for making sure the customers are happy, responsible for evolving it so that it continues to meet customer needs. And when they find a new customer need, they spin up a new team. And that architecture is evident in the AWS massive array of services. But what you have is a whole bunch of Maybe not just a 10 or 12 person team, but none of those services are managed by, are handled by more than, you know, a handful of teams Mm -hmm. that pretty much can do what they want as long as they understand the customer problem, figure out how to solve that problem and integrate it with the other services so that they all work. And so they came up in about the same time frame, the early 2000s, with the strategy of not having a massive central database, but having separate little independent teams that had their own data that they managed and they connected people through API contract type stuff rather than through a central database. Believe me, in 2005, this was an incredibly novel idea. When I was in the 90s in a big company, the idea that the central database wasn't the most important thing that the company could possibly have and everybody was working to integrate more and more stuff into it, that was just you know, like heresy that you could break it up into little pieces. Absolutely. But they did. And I, when I first heard it, I thought they were crazy or maybe they were lying, but they didn't think it was possible. And yet they did, and they did it so that they could have relatively small groups of people challenged and chartered to solve customer problems with a service. And those teams get pretty much carte blanche to do what is necessary to make that service solve the customer problems where the customers have a problem that they need. And in fact, they're not all about making more money because when they started Lambda, you know, serverless stuff, people that are on the other side of that fence told me that their bill from Amazon went down oftentimes by a factor of five or 10. Oh yeah, I've heard that. Uh, Massive reductions in revenue. Now, what managers say, oh, it's okay. I don't care if you reduce our revenue by a factor of five or so. If you are able to give the customer better service for less money, go for it. I don't know how many companies have that as their philosophy, but AWS definitely did, and that's why they're such a successful company. I think this is such a rich example, both the architectural points you're talking yeah. about, designing the teams, the designing the arch- technical architectures to support these changes, and then like really being accountable to customer success, which will drive business success, mm-hmm. not the opposite way, exactly. which so many companies optimize for as well. Let's make the business successful and yeah, yeah, maybe maybe the customers. the customers. So there's just a few companies that operate absolutely on, on the principle that if our customers are successful, we will be successful. And it's not 
money that they're looking for. It's successful customers on the theory that if they can have their part in making that customer successful, the customer will eventually pay them appropriately. I think it's a really good example. I happen to believe that, and I know that was a philosophy that I saw a lot in the 80s before shareholder value took over. <laughs> and we know who we have to thank for that. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a manifestation of a realization that scale is not possible. You can scale only to a certain point, and then complexity dominates any future gains and wipes them out. Instead of scaling, you have to descale. And descaling means figuring out how to do it in little hunks that are independent, that don't require strict dependencies, strict coordination with other things, and that lets you get dramatically larger. Now, people have understood this for a thousand years. If you look at society, cities are a very complex system, and they have always been made up of independent systems, autonomous agents who go about living their lives and interacting and being very successful for millennia. Urban planning is much closer to scale than monolithic systems. Monolithic systems are last century. Yeah, I hear about scaling agile, but anybody who wants to scale agile has no concept of serious scale. Well, you know, <laughs> this is why it's exciting to get both of your thoughts on this, because that's not what the management teams want to hear. Sorry. They want to hear. But look, scale, come on. Scale, 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 It's scale. been almost 20 years since we've started learning, or let's just say 20 years, because 99 is when Google started up. It's been two decades. That's a long time in software history. Tom, let me tell you, two decades since we started learning that descaling, as Tom said, rather than trying to coordinate across lots of pieces, is the only way to actually scale. I mean, Bezos understood that when he started his two pieces of teams. He said, you know, I just have to believe, I know you can't get the kind of scale I have in mind unless you have a lot of independent agents. He knew that. He knew that instinctively. Not too many people know it instinctively, but we should have learned that lesson. Technically, we've got that lesson laying in front of us in all of our really seriously successful internet scale tech companies. And if an enterprise wants to scale then what they have to do is look at the internet scale tech companies and what they do. And it sure isn't scaled agile. <laughs> we visited a bank once and they said, well, we really can't do that because we're really, really big. They were tiny compared to the internet scale companies. Well, there's an element of humility here, I think, that people need to start taking in, right? Because... But there's something about we're conditioned that you've got to keep going bigger and bigger and bigger. And one of the things we talk a lot on the podcast is like thinking big, but starting small and learning fast what works mm -hmm. rather than thinking big, going big, because you ultimately become too big or too big to fail or whatever drives all sorts of our first behaviors. It's interesting to hear you continually share these stories and examples of these companies who are achieving amazing things like big things that we could never imagine. Exactly, but they don't do it by getting big. Right, it's keeping They do it, it by breaking stuff into little pieces and managing it with software. And even when you talk about these ideas of, of regular syncing and hardware, 
and Amazon, two pizza teams that are given challenges to solve and figure them out mm-hmm. and, un- and be connected to their customers mm-hmm. as they take on these challenges and use that to steer. Our examples from Netflix of creating this environment where people are given challenges to do, not spreadsheets of tasks or right. specifications, but challenges that are meaningful to them, that are challenging to them, that are generally customer-focused and less so business or revenue-focused. So when you think about looking ahead now and the things that maybe, you know, as an industry, as a discipline, as a group, or whatever we call our collective, what are some of the things that you, you two are excited about, but maybe even nervous about, that if we don't get right, could lead us down a path that we don't really want to go? Well, I think we're already seeing... IT departments becoming profit centers. We're already seeing IT departments dissolving and becoming just another skill in lines of business. And I think that's going to continue. There are huge concerns about privacy that we need to address because I think it impacts autonomy of individuals. The, the ubiquitousness of what we call IT today will probably end up in it disappearing. Just like electricity disappears, it's simply there. Running water disappears, it's simply there. It's a crucial element of our life that makes the kind of things that we live possible. But the information universe, the action universe will simply disappear into the background. Our relationship with phones has already started that. I just saw a comic on Elio a few weeks ago doing time travel back 50 years. And the doctor had his cell phone that he showed to somebody that he tried to get something from. And the developer that saw it was absolutely astonished that all the knowledge of the human race was available in this little (laughs) slab. And I think that's something we don't really appreciate is how powerful yet how limited these things are. All the answers are there. What's not there is the questions. Answers are easy, especially today. Asking the right questions is hard. And if we don't ask the right questions, the answers won't matter. I really enjoy that because I think questions always make people think differently in in ways that they haven't imagined. And it ties well with this idea of, of problems, like having problems or challenges for people that we don't know how to do this. How might we do this? I think it opens up for curiosity Uh, We're the world of here's the spec, here's what's to be done, here's the solution already thought out. Just go execute that first. Yeah. That has to go. And they're just totally different worlds and environments. And as you describe architectures about how people solve problems. So I think that I've been doing software of one type or another since I told you I started in 67. So that's one total large number of years. And I have never seen anything last two decades and still be current. So if Agile is two decades old, which it is, it's not current. Not unless it's constantly adapting to what's current today. 
So we can't be calling on stuff that somebody thought about two decades ago when, I don't know, large percentage of the people doing software today weren't even in the workforce at that point in time and saying, this is the way to do things. I've never seen that work and I can't figure out how it works now. So we have to move from the philosophy of giving people requirements, telling them what to do to the philosophy of responsibility. So teams are more focused on being given problems which they are responsible to solve. And we have to figure out how to provide leadership for responsible teams rather than leadership for teams that you know take a bunch of tasks and execute them. I really enjoy that too as well. Because again, even what we're seeing in the agile movement now is frameworks of to be executed in order to achieve two decade old frameworks to be, I'm sorry, but I've been over 50 years in this business and I have never seen anything last more than 12 years. That's kind of the life cycle of any movement in software. It's a life cycle. By the time that we got to 2010, we were just beginning to see the dawn of continuous delivery, right? Yeah. Continuous delivery is a fundamental change in the agile thinking, Right. And when it finally took over, anybody who's not even thinking about how to do it now is like way back in the last century. It changed the way you think about how do we structure organizations? How do we structure teams? What kind of responsibilities can we and should we give to them? Now what's going on towards 10 years after that? All right. So there's something more coming. I'm not quite sure what, but I guarantee you that if you are stuck in one and two decade old ideas of what good process is, you're just stuck. It's never over the 50 years I've been in this business ever been a good idea to be stuck a decade ago. Doesn't work. You know, this really hits home for me because I still remember in in 2010, I was in, in ThoughtWorks. Jez had just published Continuous Delivery and people thought we were mad. Yeah. When we went in and said, you could do deployments every second. Yeah. They thought we were mad. And now almost 10 years later, if you're not doing that. You're crazy. Exactly. (laughs) You you are absolutely crazy. So So there's got to be more stuff. And to me, more stuff is going to center on giving more responsibility to teams to do seriously good engineering. And those have to be integrated teams. I mean, when Amazon put its teams together, it of course included apps in the teams because They did some statistics and like 60% of all of their problems had to do with production. So, of course, the teams had to have production folks on them because that's where a lot of problems came from. That back in 2001. Now, you know, it took a decade for that to be called DevOps, right? Yeah. But that was 2009 where that started out. And now we have to go beyond that and figure out how I think the next step is the principle of responsibility applied to integrated teams, including people with various skills, including software engineering, including reliability engineering, including security engineering, including customer understanding about what matters to them. And those kinds of teams in an architecture that allows them to be given problems and relatively autonomously work on the problems and deploy against the problems constantly so they can learn is where we have to be going in this next decade. Well, you know, I just want to say thank you to both of you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I think I could debate with you two all day. It's (laughs) it's an enjoyable activity as as much as a learning activity. (laughs) But like, I think the big takeaways for me from this conversation is 
this idea of giving people problems to solve and getting out of their way is key. Mm -hmm. Architecting both your technology and your organization to create that environment for people to pursue problems. You nailed it. Is important. Yes. And also, I think you need a word that's stronger than important. Right. We'll, we'll work on that. Please, please send in your votes. On Fundamental. The okay. <laughs> essential. How about that? I think it is essential. But also, you know, the bit that's inspiring for me is that we constantly have to keep pushing our thinking. And I think you two are just a great example of that. Here we are. You two have been doing this for decades and continue to push your thinking. And that's a real inspiration for me and many other people. So thank you for that. The other thing is when you write or talk... One of the things I've tried really hard to do is to only talk about timeless principles, not talk about current in vogue processes. And I think that's what helps us to not have to say, whoops, we were wrong 15 years ago. We were talking about principles that came from the lean movement in the 80s that were still valid, you know, by that time. And they actually turn out to be still valid today because they're underlying principles of flow and underlying principles of respecting people and giving them responsibility. And those principles are um, the things that can underpin the various changes in processes as you move forward. The thing that many organizations miss is that principles are not practices. If you copy practices, it won't work very well. Manufacturing organizations trying to copy lean practices didn't get very good results. The good results come when you get a deep understanding of the principles that underlie the practices and figure out how do those principles apply in our problem, in our context. And that is what Mary had to do when she brought discrete manufacturing lean and translated it to continuous flow manufacturing in her tape plant. And again, it happened when we looked at the catastrophe of waterfall software development and said, how do these principles apply in the context of developing software? That's where our principles for software development came from. And they're still valid. The application of them is dramatically different than it was 20 years ago, but the principles are the same because they're rooted in people and how they relate to each other. They're not rooted in any particular set of practices, but they will generate practices that are appropriate for the context that you're applying them in. No organization copying practices is going to be very successful. They have to develop their own way based on application of principles that reflect the nature of people in groups. Well, I look forward to hearing what you both continue to discover. I know you're trying to retire, <laughs> but you suck at retiring. And I'm We're glad working about on that. it. <laughs> Thanks very much Thank for you. being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay.